Welcome to What Can You Tell Me About Software? My name is Basant Thiruvedi, and I'm a graduate student at Santa Clara University, where I study data science, technology, and software. And my name is Faraz Abadi, and I spent six years as the head of software at a tech startup. Faraz, you know, these self-driving cars, man, I mean, they're kind of cool. They, they drive themselves. That's what I've heard. You know, what I think is really interesting is we hear all this hype about self-driving cars, but when the day comes when, let's say Elon Musk says, it's ready, are you going to put your life in the hands of, of a machine? I mean, we have the, the easy self-driving mode right now, but when it's truly autonomous, how long will it be before you're like, okay, for sure, the car will drive, I'll close my eyes and take a nap. I'm sort of like a disciple of Elon's. In terms of things <laughs> I value in my life, it's, it's sort of like food, shelter, Elon, the Black Eyed Peas, my family, et cetera. So I feel like I'd be one of the early adopters of his, of his self-driving car if I could afford one. I mean, <laughs> tentatively, I think he's, he himself has publicly said it'll take about five years. So if that day comes and he's like, hands off the wheel, I'll be like, yes, sir. And I'll, I'll just go for well, it. Well, there's a, there's, a there's a lot to unpack with that statement. But I, yeah, I would probably not be an early adopter. I think I would wait a couple of years until the kinks had been worked out because I don't want to be one of the kinks. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, you know, do you, do you really it's, think it's a great, do you really, no, no, Frost, do you really think they will push out a car that's fully self-autonomous? You know, will the FTC allow it? Will the government, the government at this point has probably approved it. They're going to let something on this road that you think will potentially lead to some fatalities, at least in the beginning. You, you, you really think that? Well, look at the early car adoption curve. You would say the exact same thing about going from horses to cars. These engines could explode. If you crashed into them, they were literally like a house of cards that would break. So early technologies are dangerous. And I don't, I don't I, know that. I don't know about that. I mean, people always try to connect things that are happening now to things that happened in the 1800s, but uh -huh. obviously things are different now. We have a humongous government. They have their hand in practically everything. The number one cause of death already is uh, cars that are not autonomous, right? Right. Um, so, so... I, I think, do I trust myself to drive a car or do I trust Elon and his, his people to, to right. drive for me? And I think I, right. I think I'll trust them more. So my, okay. So I think that having the car self-drive with as strong safety features is going to greatly benefit all of us. I think the question is at one point, does the government realize that having people on the road is way more dangerous than having cars on the road, than having self-driving on the road? And they say, you know what, go for it. Self-driving is ready. That doesn't mean that self-driving is still going to be safer than a person plus self-driving. You know what I mean? Ooh, okay. I see what you're I would like keep I would like keep my eyes open and my hands on the steering wheel for the first for a long time before I was willing to plunge in. I would not be someone who's like sitting, even if they say it's ready to go. That's so fun. That's a funny thought. We're, we're when we're older, you know, we have kids and they're like, dad, why do you have your hands on the wheel? <laughs> uh, son, you wouldn't understand. Yeah, I'll say, I'll it's say, from a different uh, era. I grew up in a Silicon Valley where the motto was move fast and break things. So yeah, I, I don't know about self-driving cars in a environment where that comes out. That's true. You make some valid points. I don't want to, I want to, I, I want to be an early adopter. I don't want to be a boomer of my generation. So it's, it's something you got to all, I guess, juggle when we finally get there. So I'm really excited to talk to our guest today. His name is Akshay Agarwal, and he's a PhD student at Stanford studying convex optimization. Before that, he was a software engineer at Google, working on the world's most famous machine learning framework, TensorFlow. He also interned at a self-driving car company called Aurora, 
Let's get into it. So Akshay, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Raz. It's great to be here. Cool. So let me tell you guys a a quick story. So when I was at my last job, we had this feature that we put out. It was this like really hype feature. We've been we've been working on it for for some time, and our marketing department was gonna make this big push, this big announcement about it. So they blasted out this email that said machine learning based, and all the engineers were like, "We never told them to say that." As a matter of fact, I did that a few times. So anyways, the reason I'm telling you this story is because there are some people who say that machine learning has kind of turned into this overhyped marketing term. And there are other people who are saying that machine learning is ushering in the fourth industrial revolution. So as someone who's fairly qualified to speak on this, Akshay, do you agree with either of these camps? <laughs> I love that story. I mean, it's... It's pretty obvious to me that it's overhyped. I think it's pretty obvious to everyone that it's overhyped, including the people who make those marketing, or especially the people, right, <laughs> who, who, who just slap on machine learning based onto like a, a product that has nothing to do with machine learning. But something that's overhyped can still be useful. But I mean, I don't know if you tried to count like what are meaningful, what are meaningful changes or new products brought on by machine learning? I don't know. Can you name some? There's some, but like, are, are they revolutionary? Well, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you one example. Although I still don't think it's quite where, where we hope that it will achieve. So I've been learning Mandarin for about a year and by far the most useful tool, what I'm seeing text that I'm unfamiliar with is pasting into Google Translate and Google Translate's really solid. Like I ran it by my friends who are native Mandarin speakers and they're like, yeah, that's, that's completely correct. Yeah, no. So Google Translate is uh, probably one of the best examples, I think of machine learning being put to very good use. It's just that like, you know, when people describe machine learning, like eventually you have like someone in the room who starts talking about the singularity and like how (laughs) we're actually teaching machines to learn it. And like that stuff is just kind of nuts, I think. I mean, maybe because it's like so removed from the research that is actually Mm -hmm. happening and the things that are practical. It's like more like, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't call it philosophy, but it's sort of more like, you know, speculative, almost cult-like worship of an idea that no (laughs) one is working on. Right. Well, okay. Some people claim to be working on it, but it doesn't, but so I don't want to diminish like the impact that machine learning has had. It's had like, it has had like a very large impact on software, just like the idea that, that you can differentiate through basically like any program and tune its parameters to get better performance Mm -hmm. on whatever task you have at hand, if you can quantify a performance metric, I think is, I think that's pretty big. And like, you know, the, the most obvious, I think application of that has been neural networks, you know, trained right. to predict what an image is or to translate a sentence or something like that. So yeah, I think machine learning is great, but I, I just don't think it's, you know, the new electricity or the new fire. I mean, I think Sundar Pichai right. said that in the interview, he said machine learning is more profound or as profound as fire, which I mean, is, is ridiculous, but it is right. very cool. It, it, it's very cool technology. And that's why I, I do some work related to it. So what yeah. did what did machine learning replace before? I mean, what, 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 what were people 
how are people solving these problems beforehand if they were like what kind of problem do you have a specific translation payment recognition so i mean a lot of these things i I don't think it has it sort of replaced itself i mean so, so like uh Translation, I, I don't, so I'm not an expert in translation, but I mean, people have been taking statistical approaches to translation for a long time, but I think a couple of things have changed, which has made it a lot more successful, which is, well, a lot more compute power. Like, I think, I, I don't know the specifics, but the compute required to train and even to just run inference on like large language models is quite, you know, very, very large. And having access to so much compute, I think, has really changed the game. I mean, the language models, I don't know the specific number, it's like billions or trillions of parameters. So they're very large. So that wasn't possible in the past and no one really had the guts to even try that. Right. I think even like for like self-driving cars, like machine learning in most, I think, sensible implementations of self-driving cars, a lot of the machine learning is restricted to like perception and sensing and trying to figure out what's out there in the world. And people have been using machine learning for that, for those tasks for a long time. It's just that I think specifically for images, for example, like the release of, or, or the, the creation of AlexNet in like, what was it, 2012 or something like mm-hmm. that, which was a particular convolutional neural network that crushed the ImageNet challenge. Right. Uh, I think sort of like caused a lot of people to, you know, revisit older techniques like neural networks. And like, they found out, oh, wow, these things are actually, you know, you can just make them bigger and bigger and give them more data and they'll, they'll fit, you know, any sensible function you're trying to fit. So, so a lot of people, a lot of people use the word machine learning when they really are just talking about like traditional statistical techniques, like old school Bayesian statistics. So can you kind of expand on that? Where does machine learning differ from traditional Bayesian statistics and maybe where does deep learning fit into all of that? Where does it differ? I mean, so I am not a statistician, but I can give you what, my understanding of it like if you read so so there are some people who actually do statistics so okay i think people who do statistics and people who do machine learning don't even like really talk to each other or a lot of the times they don't so they're like totally different communities so people who do like bayesian statistics to like better understand like the outcomes of like election results in like different counties Mm -hmm. or like these are the kinds of people who will like you know look at like a small data set and try to really understand like, you know, is there, they'll look at like a lot of questions in social science and like understand like, is there like a bias in policing in a specific district or something like this. There are people out there like Andrew Gelman and stuff who do things like this. And it's funny, I went to a talk by a a pretty famous statistician recently and he was talking to an AI audience. And so someone asked him, uh, these are a bunch of AI engineers. So someone asked the statistician, he was like, so what's your opinion on, you know, AGI, you know, like, you know, all these statistics tools you talk about are really great, but what's your opinion on AGI? And the statistician was like, what is that? Yeah. What is AGI? yeah that, oh, are you asking me? Yeah. Okay. It's artificial general intelligence. And that is exactly what the statistician said. He's like, what's AGI? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, like, yeah, I didn't really, so like people in the AI community, like everyone knows what AGI is because that's what open AI claims to be building. And, uh, and I think that's what DeepMind maybe I don't know if they claim that anymore, but yeah, the statistician was like, what's AGI? And then he, so he had to explain it. And then he said, okay, but like, what do you, the AI engineer goes on and said, says like, oh, but what do you think about the idea that, you know, learning is just, you know, any kind of learning, human learning, machine learning is just 
SGD, which, you know, for you and your audience, that stands for stochastic gradient descent, which mm -hmm. is a type of algorithm used to like fit neural networks or to, to learn them in quotes. And, and right. so, but the statistician, so every AI engineer will know what SGD is. The statistician says, what's SGD? So <laughs> he's just like, yeah, I mean, he knows what gradient descent is, but he doesn't think in those terms. But, right, right. So I, I don't know if I answered your question, but there's not that much overlap in, I think, the communities. And the way that it differs is like people who do machine learning today, there's a big group of them, uh, but, and they do a lot of different things. But I think most of them are interested in like, you know, fitting a model to predict something and they care about performance, mm -hmm. the performance of their model on some very specific metric. Yeah. statisticians are sort of more scientifically inclined and are, you know, using their tools as a way to actually understand something, understand some system, how it works. So, you know, right. how to predict it in the future with confidence intervals, things like this. Like, Got it. So let's get into, uh, so I want to talk about your work at TensorFlow. It's pretty crazy. I was looking it up on Wikipedia and it was only released like five years ago. It's insane. I feel like TensorFlow has taken over the world. Like every software engineer I know is aware of this one framework. So, I mean, pretty unbelievable. Yeah, no, it's it's a pretty influential software. Uh, I joined, you get involved? So I joined the TensorFlow team straight out of college, like out of my undergrad, or I guess out of my master's. I did a five-year undergrad master's program. But yeah, I just, you know, I had applied to Google. I had done a couple internships there before, and I just wound up on the TensorFlow team. And I guess this was 2017, and I was there for like, like a year or like a year and one month. What was it like working with those guys? It was fun. It was like the, so the TensorFlow team was quite large. I don't know, I guess it probably still is large. The engineers were really, really good at what they did. A lot of the engineers came, or maybe I guess most of them came from like a computer systems background. Many had PhDs. And so it was kind of like this, like I think utopia for engineers who, who liked huh. working on these kinds of problems. Cause you could work on sort of whatever aspect of TensorFlow you wanted. And like for, for like an undergrad, like having access to like, you know, people who have been at Google for like 10 plus years or like right. who have had storied academic careers as mentors was like pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So what, were the, what was the biggest change that you saw from when you started the project to when you ended? Like what was the biggest feature, the most exciting thing? Oh, yeah. So I joined in a very pivotal time of TensorFlow's life cycle, I guess. So right, it was 2018. And as you mentioned, TensorFlow was pretty young, but there were competing frameworks out there that were gaining more traction, specifically PyTorch. And I guess the, the main way that PyTorch differed from TensorFlow, and it was a really big way, was that so PyTorch felt like any normal like library for like linear algebra mathematics where like, you know, it was a Python library, is a Python library. And, you know, you like, you just, you know, the, the basic concept in PyTorch is in, you know, a multidimensional array of numbers. And then PyTorch has a bunch of functions to, you know, related to training neural networks, but also just the linear algebra for like, you know, performing operations on those neural networks, uh, on those, on those multidimensional arrays. The way TensorFlow was really different because it was not, an imperative programming language, which PyTorch was, it was declarative. You specify what it is that you want to be done. You say, this oh. is the computation, this is what I want to happen. I'll and figure then, it out. And then, yeah, and then, you know, then the system takes your, whatever you have, you know, laid out and then goes and, you know, 
executes it in however way it wants. I mean, so the line between these two things are blurry, right? Because imperative programming pro programs at the end of the day are compiled by a software compiler or interpreted. And, but right. I mean, uh, so, so there is the, I think a meaningful distinction you can still make. So, so the, specifically, oh yeah, 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 so the, so the, maybe the, maybe this is oversimplifying it, but it seems like PyTorch's approach was more like as a programmer, you lay out everything that you need to do in order Whereas TensorFlow's approach was, here's our goal, and we'll give some details about the goal, but the program is going to kind of figure out a lot of that for me. Is that fair? Maybe. There's elements in both, because in TensorFlow, you could also still lay out like a, a sequence of operations, but, the, okay. but it would still... So, so let me give... So, okay, the best way to think about it, I guess, PyTorch is... When you use PyTorch, you're, you know, you're using Python to like operate on multidimensional arrays, take their derivatives. And so to create a neural network and train it. When you're using, at least when you were using TensorFlow, like prior to 2018, you were using Python to write, you were using Python as a metaprogramming language. So you, you were using Python to write a program in another language, which was secretly TensorFlow. So TensorFlow was sort of its own language. So if you wanted to multiply two matrices in TensorFlow, what you would do is you, you create a symbolic array or a symbolic matrix, and it was called a placeholder. And then you would create a symbolic node, which was a matrix multiplication node. And you would give it its symbolic inputs, which would give you symbolic tensors. And then you would say, okay, here, this is, my, this is my data flow graph tensorflow that I want you to execute. And then you would literally call a Python function called session.run, which would take the data flow graph, which you know, actually is a program written in you know, TensorFlow's own strange language. And then it would execute it by itself. So it was like exposing all the guts of this runtime system. Um, I see. So like there was literally this, you know, like session dot run. It's like, you know, execute my program. Whereas there's not, nothing like that in PyTorch. Like that's right. not a natural way that people program. PyTorch, right. you would, you know, literally instantiate a concrete array of numbers, then multiply gotcha. them. You would see, you could print it out. You wouldn't have to call session dot run. So yeah, so you said that this was a pivotal time in- uh, Yeah. TensorFlow's history. So what was, what happened? So, so because of this distinction, so like TensorFlow was notoriously really hard to use whereas PyTorch was like how people thought. So mm -hmm. I think TensorFlow was losing some traction to people who were just absolutely in love with PyTorch. Universities were switching to teach PyTorch instead of TensorFlow. So when I joined, the team that I joined was called the TensorFlow Eager team, which was, you know, basically, I guess to put it simply was like, you know, trying to figure out how to transform TensorFlow into something that was a lot more like an imperative PyTorch style programming paradigm. So basically what this what we were doing on this team was that building an alternative front end to TensorFlow's back end. Meaning so instead of instead of creating we were trying to make it so that instead of creating a graph ahead of time and then executing, telling TensorFlow to run it, you know, we would instead, you know, when you type matmol, if TensorFlow eager execution is enabled, which is what we were working on, we would just execute it immediately. And so this sort of, then, you know, people realize that like for usability, you know, like it, it really is like, it makes a huge difference to, to su support this imperative programming style. So like all of TensorFlow rallied around TensorFlow Eager, and this turned into TensorFlow 2, which is, you know, the main version of TensorFlow that's out today. And right. TensorFlow 2 is, and PyTorch, they basically converged in terms of how they. In terms yeah. of the, how they're, how they're being used. Yeah, the, the programming paradigm as well. So both of them are imperative, you know, by default, okay. meaning like they, they work just as you would think any other like uh, library would. But both yeah. of them also have this sort of special, you know, just-in-time tracer that's built in, like a tracing compiler, where like if you write, you know, your code in just the right way, 
so that so if you write it in just the right way, follow some you know some rules, some restrictions on the grammar of what you can write. You can add a Python decorator to your functions, and then you'll sort of TensorFlow or PyTorch will transparently compile that function just in time into like a unified graph and then execute it more efficiently. Got it. So what what exactly did you work on? Are you allowed to say that? Yeah, 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 sure. So I worked on TensorFlow Eager, which is the thing okay. that we've been talking about. Cool. And I worked on the just-in-time tracer, which is the thing I just talked about. So yeah. if anyone uses TensorFlow to, to today, they'll know what it's called. It's called the tf.function decorator. And so it was this idea of basically it was like a, a mini just-in-time tracer that like, you know, you have a Python function of, that, that has a bunch of TensorFlow operations and you could decorate that function with, you know, tf.function and it would basically compile it when you first ran it. So the first compilation is slow, but the promise is, you know, if you wrote your function in just the right way, we'll actually be able to compile it and we'll be able to get you speed ups. We'll be able to run your code on a TPU or a GPU or something like that. Cool. All right. So just to kind of take a step back here, you have experience both working in, you know, some of the world's top academic institutions and one of the world's top tech companies. So what is, how do you view innovation taking place at, at both of these? How, do, how are they similar? How do they differ? Yeah, how do I view innovation? Okay, let's see. That's, that's a really interesting question. So I, I spent a year at a very, I guess, so at Google Brain, which is, you know, was not representative of Google writ large. And I can mm -hmm. talk about what I saw there. It felt a lot like a research lab. So people could really, I, it's more or less work on whatever they wanted to Maybe there were some unwritten guidelines that, you know, you weren't supposed to cross. Everyone at that team, I think just because of the kinds of people that they hired, were like really interested in neural networks and reinforcement learning specifically. Mm -hmm. And there was also, I guess, a bias towards doing research that ended up in, that somehow translated into a software artifact. It wasn't always okay. necessary, but there was a bias to that. And that was, I think, really valued. So you would contrast that with the research uh, lab at, say, Stanford, where, yeah. you know, you just do research that you think is, well, how do you even, we'll get, I guess we, we can get into that later. But you're, I actually, I think this is, this is quite surprising that they didn't mandate that. They said, you, you guys can do research. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't turn into software, we don't necessarily want to encourage that, but that's not a big deal. Now, yeah, they had some theory, they had a few, not many, but they had a few people that just did theory. I think maybe, maybe not, but it, you know, what you chose to work on could actually maybe have repercussions on whether or not you got promoted and things okay. like that. Makes but sense. there was, there was nothing like saying like, oh, you should definitely work on, you know. What was Google's, what was Google's end game for just doing pure theory stuff? Oh, I don't know. I mean, they didn't have many who did pure theory. Um, got you. So what do you think are the main drawbacks or weaknesses of machine learning? Drawbacks or weaknesses of machine learning? To, so, I mean, I, let's see. I guess it really depends on, you know, what application you're using it for. So maybe one way to ask that question is, you know, when would you use machine learning and when wouldn't you? Maybe, so let me actually, let me maybe tell you what, what I'm thinking. So we've heard about this a lot where people go on Facebook and they're just kind of normal people who maybe don't have uh, great media literacy. And suddenly they get exposed to this more and more engaging content, which is actually like a path towards indoctrination into these like hardcore right, right. right wing beliefs. Same thing with YouTube. YouTube, like yeah. you start out watching, you might, you might start out watching like gaming videos and it takes you down this rabbit hole of just like hardcore 
like right nationalist content. And it seems like this is because the way machine learning works, it's very difficult for someone to peek under the hood as to exactly what the algorithm is doing. But what is your take? Yeah, yeah, no, that stuff is horrible. I, I hate that stuff. Yeah, recommender systems, you know, have been, I think, shown to be pretty pernicious at radicalizing people. There was like an interesting study or some researcher looked at you like saw lots of different trajectories to YouTube recommendation engine and saw they all ended up at like, crazy radical content. Why does this happen? Uh, so, okay, I think it's important to also like, you know, not treat machine learning as this one monolithic thing. Like recommender systems are like a really specific application and it's like really not that related to like fitting a neural network or like a linear model to predict the specific quantity. It is somewhat related. Okay. Uh, but they're going to be using things like reinforcement learning or contextual bandits or something. But so I, I, so stepping back, I think like the main problem here is like we have no good methods right now to deal with feedback loops in user facing software. Like, like it's a, just a total right indoctrination cycle. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't even just... catch that. There's no tools to even catch that that's happening. Uh, oh, uh, well, so I guess I was, what I was going to say is like, so the problem, so so the problem that recommender systems are working on already, which is like, you know, I know like, you know, very, so let's see, I need, so here's a user, they are interested in some things. I don't exactly know what they're interested in. I don't know how they're going to react if I show them this content versus that content. So let right. me just find some, you know, let me try and figure out like what they'll like the best. So that's already a hard problem because like, what, the, what does it mean to, for a user to like the best? Something more than yeah. something else. How do you know what's good for a user, what's not good for a user? So like, it's not even clear what the objectives are. The algorithms used to like actually figure out like what people, you know, what, what to show people are like also like not that well understood or maybe if they're well understood, like the dynamics of how it's actually going to affect the user's behavior is not understood right. at all. And it's so like... So, yeah, yeah so I, I can't imagine that the people working for YouTube wants, you know, people, especially like young kids to get indoctrinated into the alt, right? But that's what's happening to some extent. That's that's happening on, on some level. So why? Like, what, why is this hard for them to stop? So I don't know. So, okay, full disclosure is that I have no idea of what the numbers are, of how often this happens, et cetera. Right. I mean, I don't know. Like, how would you do it? How would you stop it? You could write some kind of random kludge software code is like don't rec you know recommend a specific <laughs> set of videos but that's already like you know it's very hard to tell to like you know whether or not a video is you know like who's to say like a specific piece of content or information right, right. or opinion is you know deserves the light of day or not so it's i think it's more of a question of like you know what metrics are they optimizing for and it seems like maybe in some cases it's not a great metric or maybe you know these people actually want to see this content and it sort of the question elevates above like you know an algorithmic problem to like a censorship related, yeah. yeah or yes, no, not even just censorship but like like editorial problems are like you know at what point do these media platforms have to make editorial decisions i mean it clearly they're they are now starting to have to make editorial decisions and it's becoming pretty interesting sometimes sweeping editorial decisions i mean this is not related to machine learning but with facebook like just banning all of australian news from its entire platform was quite interesting right um, yeah so i don't know if i have a good answer of why they can't stop it it's like i you know if if you know push came to shove and someone said you know never recommend content that you know has these specific characteristics maybe is related to the alt-right you know well you know you could maybe do that but 
I don't know. Are they going to do that? Maybe, maybe right. not. Should they do that? Interesting question. And they're always going to find ways around it. The people making this type of content are always going to find yeah. the little peripheries of the... Of the... And, and maybe one thing to highlight, you know, I've seen this misconception made in like the media a lot when people talk about systems like YouTube. So they'll say, they'll say something like, so like on the topic of, you know, quote, fake news, they'll say something like this. They'll say, man, so like, you know, Google and Facebook, you know, are so reluctant to take down fake news and the spread of like disinformation. And yet when someone posts, you know, copyrighted content on one of their platforms mm -hmm. and like, you know, a big, you know, the copyright owner is big and famous, such as like Beyonce or I don't know, some, some media corporation, yeah. you know, YouTube will take it down immediately. So this shows that, you know, YouTube and Google and Facebook are not acting in good faith because they could take down misinformation immediately if they wanted to. And that's like totally it's like a really bad analogy to me. Like those two tasks are not equivalent at all. Like it's extremely easy to like, if you know it, like a specific song is copyrighted and it should not be uploaded by anyone other than the copyright owner. It's extremely right. easy to figure out, oh yeah, this is the song that is copyrighted. Like, you know, you can just fingerprint it and, you know, you ban it from being uploaded. It's like infinitely harder. You know, you have a video, you have an article the computer's job is now to determine semantically whether this thing is you know telling the truth or arguing in good faith that's i mean humans can't you know humans can't do that reliably and like we're no nowhere close to having computers from being right, able to right. make these decisions so the so. so the the kind of the indoctrination spiral problem that's not necessarily just a machine learning problem it's a broader problem within the recommendation algorithm I guess so. I mean, I would totally preface all of this, but I am not an expert on indoct indoctrination uh, right. problems. I mean, I personally don't find recommender systems interesting. And so I don't think about them often. I think they do pose problems to our society. I don't like it when, when computers recommend, you know, it's like this, like almost like a weird rebellious instinct. Like if a computer tells me, Hey, you should look at this, like, <laughs> screw you. I'm not going to, you know, you don't know me. Like I, right. I, I determine my own taste. Right. Right. So I, I just don't find it interesting. Like, you know, it just ends up making everyone think the same thing and all opinions become bland and everyone is parroting right. each other. Um, right. There was so a world, there was a world that existed not too long ago where these types of systems didn't exist at all. You know, YouTube's, or it was very, very obvious. Like I remember when I was, I think in high school, YouTube's recommendations on the side were just like other videos from this channel. Yeah, cool. Yeah, that, that, that would be useful. Or maybe we should go back to that. I don't know. <laughs> I don't spend too much time. I mean, if I am on YouTube, it's like I look at my specific subscriptions and I don't really look at what YouTube recommends me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what we've talked a lot about, about machine learning and, you know, in some sense, we can say that was like your past life. So now you're working on some new problems in the space of convex optimization. So can you kind of tell us how you got into that and then explain what convex optimization is? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. So I guess I would just clarify that, like, machine learning is not necessarily my past life. Like, <laughs> so as you'll see, that convex optimization and optimization more broadly is like really sort of intimately related to machine learning, or at least machine learning is one of its biggest applications these days. So I still do work in machine learning, but I just have broader interests, I would say. Yeah, so I can talk about optimization, convex optimization specifically. Optimization is this really interesting, it's a really interesting subject. So I guess the, the broadest term for it is mathematical optimization. 
and actually, so maybe, you know, the discussion we had on declarative and imperative programming is helpful here. So mathematical optimization is almost like this declarative approach to solving problems where you, you articulate exactly what it is you want. So, so you typically like, so in a mathematical optimization problem, you have a variable which represent, which is a list of numbers, which, you know, can rep represent one of many things. It can represent all kinds of things. It can represent like, you know, trades that you're going to make in a financial portfolio. It can represent, you know, how you are going to, it can represent like actuators. It can represent, like, it can represent things like how you're going to allocate resources across many different entities, things like this. But you have this variable yeah. and it, it needs to be chosen in order to, you know, it needs, you want to choose it optimally. So your job in creating a mathematical optimization problem is to define what does it mean for, you know, a choice for this variable to be optimal that's through a mathematical objective function. You write down a function that associates with each associates to each value of the variable and associates a, a value which says how good was that choice. Right. Um, and you may also have some constraints on the variable which are inviolable, which says something like, you know, you can't spend more money than you have at hand. So right. in mathematical optimization, you write down exactly, you articulate what needs to be chosen, you know, what, what makes one choice of the value better than another. And you write down also constraints on, on the value. And once you write down those three things, if you can write them down using math, you now all of a sudden have access to, you know, hundreds of algorithms that can be applied to numerically solve this problem and find you, if not the best choice of the variable, a very good choice of the variable. And importantly, a choice of the variable that you, a human, would not have been able to come up with yourself. So I think maybe we can illustrate this by talking about like, say landing a, a spacecraft. So let's say I'm, yeah, let's say I've, I've launched a spacecraft and I wanna land it on the surface of the moon. What would an ML solution look like and why might that not be so good compared to a, an optimization solution? Oh God, I don't know what an ML solution would look like. That would be, let's talk about what an optimization solution would look like first okay. maybe. Okay. So you wanna land a spacecraft. So there's gonna be a lot of things going on, but at, at the end of the day, you're gonna be, so you're going to know, I guess, where you want to land or like a region of space that you want to land in. So you want, you okay. know, your, your final position should be, you know, what your final velocity should be, i.e. zero. Yeah. Right. Because you want to land. Now your current velocity, you know, your current position. Now you want to find, so you, so you want to, I guess there's two things. You want to plot a trajectory, right? That will take you to your specific location where you want to land and, you know, have velocity zero. And you want to track that trajectory. The way that you're going to, you know, I guess, create that trajectory and, you know, actually move your spacecraft is by coming up with a sequence of forces to apply to whatever actuators are on your spacecraft. So this like, is these uh, forces. Yeah, like like use the, the right thruster, like push that a little further, push the left thruster a little exactly, further. Exactly, exactly. So the, the order in which you do that is what the, con is what the optimization problem is trying to figure out. Yeah, like when, you know, when do you, basically, I, maybe, yeah, so when are you going to actuate? Maybe you've already decided, you, you've discretized time, you know, I'll actuate every, like, I don't know, millisecond, mic let's, yeah, let's keep 100 simple, microsecond, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you're going to decide at each time, time step, it, how much thrust or, you know, will each actuator generate and in what direction, things like that. And in doing that, you know, you're going to create a sequence of positions and a sequence of velocities that your your space your, your spacecraft is going to track through time so here like the objective function might be something like find this you know sequence of thrust these or actuator allocations through time 
that will allow you to land safely. And, and, but the objective will be to use as little force as possible, say. Little, use as little, as little fuel as possible, say. Okay. Minimum okay. fuel. Or, you know, if you're weird, you might want to, like, land as fast as possible. Right. Yeah, in sh as short amount of time as possible, something like that. The okay. constraints are going to be the laws of physics, right? The constraints are going to be, like, you know, if I apply, you know, this force here, and I'm going to be over... You know, at the next time step, I'm going to be in this position. My velocity is going to be this. So, so now you have this. So, so once you codify, codify these things, the physical constraints, what you want out of your landing profile uh, of your of your vehicle when you, when while it's landing, you know what you want to achieve. You now have a mathematical optimization problem, in which the variables are, I guess, in this case, you know, the decisions you're making for each actuator at each time step. So, um, so okay, so we've laid out. All right, so. We have this problem, which is we want to land the spacecraft. In order to turn it into an optimization problem, first we say, what is the goal? The goal is to land it, which means reach position X with velocity zero. We have the thing that we're optimizing for, which is we can either minimize the amount of fuel or we can make sure that we're landing as quickly as possible or whatever else we want to. But we, yeah. And it's possible to choose more than one of these. Yeah, yeah, you can you can have multiple goals, objectives that you're optimizing for, and in okay. which case you're, you're you're trading off, you're trying to find an optimal trade off between those two, okay. and 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 the the degree to which you're trading off between them is represented by that that's a hyperparameter in your objective function. Gotcha. So so you'll say like you know I care about this objective, this subobjective more than that one. You know, it's gotcha. a hyperparameter that you would tune ultimately to get good gotcha. performance. Okay, so then we've got that. And then finally, we have what are the constraints that we cannot violate under any circumstances? Exactly. Like the law of gravity. Violated. The law of gravity cannot be violated. You can't, you can't touch the ground and still have a velocity exactly. at the end of the... Like there are just some, some rules that can't be yep. broken. If you, break, um, if you break that constraint, you're going to crash, right? If you're not at velocity right. zero, what you win. Right. So, so yeah, so is this, it sounds like this is the only game in town then, right? Or this is the yeah, best I mean, solution to a problem like this? Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's great. Yep. So, so this is like broadly in the topic of control. By the way, so SpaceX does this. They, I don't remember what the name of the rocket was. This is my advisor loves the Falcon. This example. It could have been the Falcon. It was one of the rockets that lands, you know, vertically. So there was a guy at our lab who, who worked on these kinds of things, and he graduated. He went to SpaceX full time, and you know, he writes to my advisor Stephen Boyd from time to time, giving him updates. But yeah, they solve like, they solve my. It's like at the it could even be like the kilohertz frequency. I don't remember. It's, it's like they solve tons of convex optimization problems, sequences of con uh, optimization problems while their vehicles are landing using yeah. something which is called model predictive control. Yeah, it, it's awesome. I, I think like does Tesla use these things? So there's like this, this is code generator called CVX Gen. And, you know, it's unfortunately it's a commercial tool. I mean, we're working on building code generation into some of our own software we can talk about that later but but the idea is you you type in you know it's a web interface you you type in the problem that you want to solve and it generates flat that you can put it generates flat c and in particular that c will take as it, the inputs to the problem so whatever data specifies the problem so for example it could be your current velocity current position some things that you know about your environment so the, so the, the stuff that we've described like all those those inputs to the convex um optimization you just throw them on this website and then it will spit out c code that give that actually gives you the answer. Yeah, so so you well so you, you 
in that website, you, you type in the problem symbolically and it spits yep. out C code. So, so the problem is going to be parameterized by some input data, right? Like, so you could imagine right, right, you're, right. you're solving this program like many times a second and what's right. different each time, each time you solve it, like you have a different velocity, you have a different position. So it'll spit out C code that takes the input data and then it's just, just a function really. And take the input data and then give you an answer. And right. so you take that C code, it's flat C code, you put it on your spaceship and now you have you know, a controller. So I think they actually use CVXGen, maybe, I don't know. They, they, there's a paper by Lars Blackmore that describes how they do this. In like two sentences it's mentioned, spacecraft winding and SpaceX. Yeah, so people talk a lot about how Tesla is really powered by machine learning. And that's probably true for the image recognition stuff to figure out what's going on around them. But it sounds like that feeds in the input for I don't know. I guess there's a way to do. I mean, I'm sure there's a way to do. Yeah, that, that's exactly. Yeah. That, you know, that, that's total. Oh god, yeah. I mean, some people are trying to do that. Like Kama AI, I think claims that. Have you heard of them? No. They're they're like actually they're this open source uh, self driving car company. I guess I don't know. All their software is open source. Uh, they're trying to do self driving end to end from vision to steer actions and accelerate. But no, what you're describing is exactly like that's how like that's how like every all the major self-driving car platforms or whatever you want to call them work today is that you have machine learning that does the sensory processing, right? So you have uh -huh. a bunch of sensors, you have LiDAR, you have vision, whatever else you have, radar. Machine learning will sort of make sense of the world and say, okay, there's a pedestrian over there. There's a stop sign over there. Here's the road. Here's other things that, that are you know, around you. But now you have to make, now the car has to make decisions. And in my opinion, if you have a sane self-driving, if you have a sane software stack, your decision is not going to be made by a machine learning model. It's going to be made by optimizing, by solving an optimization problem. And that's how, at least I, I think many of these places do it. So like the first decision you have to make is, okay, here's the scene, like trajectory do I, you know, how do I plot a safe and safe and comfortable trajectory through right. this scene, which by the way, is like an extremely hard problem because it's also like, you have to predict where everyone is going to be, you know, you have to make sure it's just like, first of all, like semantically figuring out what's in the scene is hard and then figuring out what to do right. safely. And, and like you are working hundred percent of the time is even harder, but so that's right. an optimization problem to plot, plot a trajectory. Then you have another layer of optimization that below that. Once you have a trajectory that you want to, you want to achieve, then you have something that's probably running at like a kilohertz or, or faster, which is which is actually generating control inputs for the car to track the trajectory. So it's like generating accelerate, steer, decelerate, yeah. steer, yeah. all, all yeah. these types of commands and probably, you know, more things that I don't know about. But you, you've got like multi-level yeah, decision making. So, so it sounds like maybe one of the, the most impressive things with the most useful features of uh, optimization is constraints. So the fact that like, under no circumstances is this car allowed to crash. Yes, there are just yeah. some laws that we cannot violate. Is that also doable in ML or is convex optimization, is that why convex optimization is really the only solution uh, to this? I mean, let's see, is that doable? I mean, in ML, you can have, you can, there are like lots of ad hoc ways to put constraints on your output, right? Uh -huh. Like you can, you can parameterize something so that the output is always positive or something like this. But like more broadly, like, if you are able to articulate what it is you want and what constraints it has to satisfy, like I see no reason not to use an optimization problem because like, you know, you will get exactly what you ask for, you know, right. so you better know what you're asking for. You better be sensible in making, you know, you know, in crafting this program, mathematical right. program. 
but you will get exactly what you ask for, assuming your problem, you know, modular sum assumptions, like, you know, we haven't talked about convexity yet, but we can talk about that later. Basically, co convex optimization is a subset, subset of problems that are, you know, efficiently and globally solved, solvable. But yeah, so you have guarantees on your output. It's sensible, it's interpretable. Like, you know what your model is optimizing for and like, you know, it's never gonna do something crazy. Like my, you know, here's my advisor's favorite example when he gives talks these days. He's like, you know, your system will never characterize a stop, size, a stop sign as a banana, which, you know, it's a famous example of neural network mission Which might happen, like yeah, which might happen with machine yeah. learning model. Uh, yeah, and so you're not gonna use a context optimization problem to do vision, but that's, you know, the general idea. Like it's not gonna do anything stupid unless you, the modeler was stupid and created a stupid problem. In right. which case, it's your fault, not the not yeah. the technology's fault. Right. Yeah. So you you can you can find with convex optimization as compared to machine learning, it's easier to find stupidity upstream than discovering exactly. it downstream. Exactly. Yeah. Oh god. Yeah. With machine learning, once you once you realize you have stupidity in your model, like oh god, good luck and like it's very hard to. I that's I think part of the reason, like the whole conversations around like bias in machine learning models. It's like. Okay, you've detected that your machine learning model is making biased outputs, predictions, or something harmful predictions. Have fun retraining it and reprocessing <laughs> all your training data. I mean, these, yeah. So, so the beauty, one beautiful part of optimization is that, like, you know, it really requires you to think really clearly about what is it the problem that you're trying to solve. You know, hmm. not how are you going to solve it. You first need to think really clearly what do you want to solve. And I think this is like a gap in a lot of, I think like even in computer, maybe especially in computer science education. So that was my undergrad where like, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on how are you going to solve a problem, but not so much emphasis on what is actually the problem. And the beautiful thing about optimization is that it, it decouples these two things. So first you have to articulate your problem. And then there's a whole family of optimization algorithms, which are, you know, you can think of as gradient descent plus plus more sophisticated things than that for actually solving these problems. So, so the the concept of stupidity in in models is that like an academic term? Because if not, I think you have a great opportunity to coin something popular here. Yeah, I don't know. Sure. Yeah, maybe I should. You know, stupid models versus not stupid models. Yeah, I mean, I'm and being like, kind of facetious, but sorry. Well, also like to to make that a specific metric, like the percentage <laughs> of stupidity. Yeah, yeah, no, that would be great. Unfortunately, I think it's very application specific. So it would be a very laborious process to, to, to quantify that in all different fields. But I encourage people who to, work, to work on this. I mean, there's even like, like optimization has tons of applications. It's like, you know, literally, so my advisor, Stephen Boyd, in his optimization course, he has, so his book is, you know, all about applications of optimization. It's already 700 pages long. But he also has like a PDF of like additional exercises, which are all applications of convex optimization, self-contained applications. It's actually really beautiful. You don't really need to know anything except for optimization. And it's like 200 pages of applications in machine learning in geometry and circuit design and signal processing and control and trajectory wow. optimization in finance, mechanical and aerospace engineering, energy and power management. There's just tons. So it's, Anyway, it would be very hard to develop a stupidity index for all of these. I mean, this sounds like pretty amazing stuff. Like ML is getting all of this hype. Why is optimization not getting the spotlight? I mean, it's not, you know, ML is machine learning, you know, it's artificial intelligence is very attractive and like, you know. Sci-fi. I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure there's some part of our brain that is stimulated when you talk about AGI <laughs> or something. Right. I mean, optimization is interesting. Like, so, 
yeah, I remember like, so, okay. So there's some, there's some people in the machine learning community who, you know, when they hear convex optimization, you know, they're like, they're like, kind of raise their eyebrows like, oh, you work on convex optimization. You know, that's, that's pretty old stuff. Like, you know, what does your, what does you, what do you think now that we're doing all these, we're solving all these non-convex problems, which is like, okay, should we talk about what convex means really briefly? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. It, like geometrically convex problem. Okay. So I'm telling you well, what, basically if a problem, mathematical optimization problem is convex, it's sort of like a, a condition that guarantees that we can solve it efficiently, globally, polynomial time. And really what it means is like, so at the end of the day, what you're doing in all these optimization problems, you're finding some minimums of some function. This function is your objective function, which you know specifies, I guess, the cost of each of different values for your variable. So you want to find the, the, the assignment of lowest cost. So you're minimizing a function. Convex means the function. So you have is, a goal. Yeah. So, so you have a goal, which is like we want to use the minimum amount of fuel to land the spacecraft. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that is convex. Yeah, that, that function, that, that that minimum fuel function is convex, which means like roughly speaking, like if you it's shaped kind of like a bowl or something like that, like it, it has nice curvature that makes it amenable to for iterative algorithms to find its minimum. So there are, yeah, so there are some ways for me to do this, which would use a ton of fuel, but there's one, does it, okay, does it have to be the case that there's only one perfect no. solution? Can there be multiple? No, there, there could be many, but what is true is that any solution that that appears to be locally optimal like so any solution that is better than anything around it nearby is also going to yeah. be globally optimal so you won't have okay. yeah but right so, so it's a convex, there, yeah, there it's can a convex shape yeah it's like a convex yeah. shape like like i'm trying to describe this over the podcast how do you describe something which is convex like a bowl, right? like a bowl. Can, right, right, right the like bowl, bowl the bowl can have a flat bottom in which case there's mm. many solutions but right, you know right. they're all the what's nice about the semantics of, of an optimization problem is that like you don't care about which solution you get. If you did your job correctly in specifying the problem, like you should be equally happily, you should be equally happy with any solution that is furnished to you, right? You cannot complain right. if you get one solution compared to another because I see. one, they both satisfy the constraints and both they have the same exact objective value. So if you right. can, if you still have an opinion that one is better than the other, that means you need to go and fix your specification of the model because you haven't, you, so you have not, told me enough or told the optimization algorithm enough about what you care about. So my understanding is that for these solving techniques that are used for convex optimization problems, if you apply a non-convex optimization problem to them, you're still going to get pretty good results a lot of the time. Is that yes. correct? Yes. So that's actually, that's where I was going and which is a really good insight that you had is that like, so people kind of like, you know, people who Okay, let's see. We should be polite. So some people who maybe like well who who are used to you know fitting neural networks. You know, neural networks are non-convex objects or functions. They're they're loss functions or non-convex typically. So like oh you know you do convex optimization. Like does it scare you that we are doing non-convex? <laughs> like <laughs> the thing is like you know literally the only things we know how to sensibly optimize like loosely speaking are convex functions and you know, with convex constraints. So, you know, algorithms for minimizing non-convex functions are, they're based off what we know about con convex functions. So like gradient descent, which uh, should we define gradient descent or should we just move on? Let's move on. Okay, so like gradient descent, right? Like, I mean, that works for convex functions. Like, you know, you will globally always find, you know, the best or, you know, and you will always find an, a solution. 
Will you always find a solution if you apply it to a non-convex problem? No, but sometimes you will. It's what people use. It's fine. Right. Uh, and like more broadly, like for, you know, for things that are not, even for non-convex optimization problems, like, you know, I, I spent the last year thinking about some very specific non-convex optimization problems. We appear to solve them almost globally, or I mean, they're like, those, our solutions are good enough for our use case. And right. you know, we use algorithms that were developed for convex optimization. So right. the algorithms, you know, you develop them for convexity and then you just apply them to non-convex cases. So speaking, so if we're going to, let's, let's get a little technical now about how you solve a, well, actually, let me, let me take that back. So let's, let's, let's look at this. We've been talking about theory. So let's talk about practice. If you want to solve a optimization problem, I've been done some digging and I found out there's a wonderful library in Python <laughs> called CVXPy. It's got 5,000 stars on GitHub. Wow, that's more than I thought. Cool. Yeah, and I saw on the contribution history that you, Akshay Agarwal, wrote 90% of the code base. So my question is, how is wait, your wait, life wait. changed? Wait, 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 how much? That doesn't sound right. I, you wrote like, like, like 80,000 lines or something. Like your contribution is like way more than everybody else's. Yeah, well, really? I've written a lot, but the original developer was Stephen Diamond. Who, so I, I would guess he's done more than me and I don't want to take all okay. his credit. All right, but fair enough. Maybe, maybe but, I'm second. Okay, so you've written a huge percentage of, of a code base. It's a very popular library. So my question is, how has your life changed since becoming a celebrity? Yeah, I think I think if I was a celebrity, I would know it. So my life has not changed yet because that statement is false. But I guess I can go on podcasts now, like, like this one. You know. So if someone is interested in getting into is interested in playing around in this field using your library that you're number two or number one, maybe number, number two. two. What is something? What is like kind of like a fun pet project that you might recommend for them to play around with for CVXPy? Yeah, it really depends on, you know, what their background is and what their interests are. And so maybe we can do a few different case studies of what people are interested in. So first, the first thing you would do is go to cvxpi.org to actually mm -hmm. figure out what the heck this is. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess we can say what this is. So it's like a, it's like a Python library for specifying and solving convex optimization problems. And so this is like, a, I think it's a really beautiful embodiment of the thing that we've been talking about, of like declarative versus imperative programming. So in CVXPy, it can be thought of as like a, of a domain-specific language embedded in Python. So what you do is in CVXPy is, you know, with like really natural syntax, you specify a convex optimization problem. And, you know, CVXPy has a, has a really small grammar, like in the programming languages sense, that guarantees that the functions, as long as you stay within that grammar, the problems that you specify are convex, meaning we can solve them efficiently, globally, you don't have to worry about it. So, so once you all those things we all those things we talked about, like just you just say dot loss function equals this or dot constraint yeah, you, you equals say, this. You say objective function equals this, constraints is a Python list of like inequalities, basically, or equalities. Okay. Like literally, like you know, CVX pi dot uh, x or like norm of variable is less than or equal to one or whatever your constraint is. Right, uh, velocity is less than seven, whatever. Exactly, a better example, you know, final position equals equals zero, like we overload the equals equals operator. Anyway, mm -hmm. you specify your problem, you create a problem object, then you call problem.solve. And that will basically, that is, it's gonna compile your program into a format that a, that a low level numerical solver will accept and then return you a solution. So that's what CVXPy is. So if, if you're interested in like trying it out, and so I guess here are like a few different classes of problems that, you know, convex optimization can be used for and which you can 
you can, you know, try it out on. Let's see. So one, one really big one is like resource allocation. So you have, you know, you have like a, a bunch of, let's make this like really concrete, I guess we can talk about like allocating like compute resources, like in a data center to like a uh-huh. collection of jobs. Okay. So you have a bunch of resources. You so have I'm like, your a, data I'm like an AWS, so I'm like an AWS server. And exactly. there's a bunch of different companies who are all renting out our top GPU. So I need yeah. to figure out like, I'm going to give this percentage of GPU time to this one guy. I'm going to give this percentage to this one guy. So everybody's happy. They don't have to wait too long um, and they yeah. get good results. Exactly. Yeah. So like the things that you're allocating are CPU, GPU, memory, disk, network bandwidth, something like, you know, probably like a five or six vector like that. Mm-hmm. And you have a bunch of people coming in asking for different amounts of resources. And you figure out what's the best way for me to share my, or to, to, to allocate resources to all these different people or like, you know, maximizing effective throughput or something or some notion of fairness or something like that. So that's, that's one example you can get started. I don't know if we have an example. We have a library of example notebooks at cvxpy.org. And then there's like an examples link. Maybe that's there. If it's not, we should add one. But that's one really good example and like an easy way to get started. I think like, you know, the most, one of them, this is also related to like a famous kind of silly problem called the diet problem where like you as an individual are choosing what you should eat in any given day and you want to maximize your nutritional value or, and I don't know, minimize the amount you spend or something. Well, maybe your constraints are you meet budget. whatever your minimum nutrition's yeah, budget right, right. and like nutritional uh, requirements. And then, yeah. So anyway, if you were really weird, you could solve a convex optimization problem to decide what to eat on any given day. I feel like people around you would not be very happy with you if you went to a restaurant and said, oh, you can't, you can't order that food because <laughs> your, your CVX Pi program said. Yeah, let me just, let me just load that into CVX Pi before I decide if I'm going to order this. Uh, I think you will be not. ridiculed, so I, I don't recommend that. But anyway, so, so resource allocation problems are like a broad class. Another one is finance. So finance is probably like, I think, for better or worse, the most prominent, it's probably like the most salient example of op- convex optimization of having like a really big impact in industry. So, so here the variables are, here the variable represents how much money you're going to invest in across a universe of assets. You might be long some assets, you might be short some assets. And the objective is to maximize your expected return while mm-hmm. also minimizing, minimizing risk. risk. So you're trading yeah. off return at risk. Right. So you can get started with that pretty easily. I think like you get some data online for like, you know, mean ret- historical returns of different assets. Wow. And you can get a covariance matrix by making it yourself. Actually, there are companies that's, that sell these. Oh, a covari- covariance ma- matrix specifies how risky different asset uh, okay. uh, investments are. There's literally okay. companies that will like send, sell you a covariance matrix for like a million dollars. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Like, I thought the whole point is that this is public markets. So like <laughs> all this stuff. Anyway, but that's an easy way to get started. Um, Wait, so you're saying you're saying I can use CVX Pi to become a Bitcoin millionaire? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I feel like some... There's been some cryptocurrency papers that have been citing our papers. I don't know. Some people right, we'll, in my we'll, lab we'll, are actually are we'll, very we'll talk, we'll, we'll talk more about this after the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you can't can't share too much. But yeah, finance people also use CVX Pi to do things like design airplanes. I don't know. Maybe that's hard to get started. I don't know how many people are interested in designing airplanes, but you could do it. But yeah, I guess I would say the best way to get started would be to go to cvxpi.org and look at the examples. You would, you would get a sense of the different things you can apply it to.
Very cool. So what are some of the open questions in the field of convex optimization? Yeah, there's a lot there. Let's see. In my opinion, the more interesting ones <clears throat> sorry, have to do with applications of convex optimization. So this resource allocation one that we've been talking about of like, how can a data center, uh, how can a data center uh, provider or someone who maintains a data center, how can they allocate the resources optimally? That's one that I'm pretty interested in just because mm. like, I think it's low hanging fruit and people just haven't done it because not that many people know about convex optimization. It's kind of weird, right? Because so convex optimization is based on linear programming, which is this like very old school or some people think it's this very old school technique that was developed in the 1930s. But what people don't realize is convex optimization really only came into maturity and in like mathematical maturity in like the 1990s. So mm. like software is like really lagging behind still. Anyway, so I, I think that this resource allocation example is like a great way that a convex optimization could have a really big impact in industry. Because right. like, I, I think like data centers run at like something like 20% utilization or something ridiculous. Wow. So like, they really waste their resources. And I mean, you know, it's more important that, you know, you can actually run the workloads that need to run, then you figure out how to optimize it. So fine, but that's a great example. Right. There's other examples. There, there are some more things related to algorithms for context optimization that I think, you know, are worth researching. One question that I'm interested in is, you know, how, how far can we push like gradient-based methods for to, to solving optimization problems with constraints? So if you have no constraints on an optimization problem, you can always do gradient descent more or less. When you have constraints, it becomes a little bit more interesting, a little bit more difficult. And like now that we have, you know, just amazing software like PyTorch, JAX, and TensorFlow, like has really sort of like led to a mini revolution in optimization. Like, oh my God, we can differentiate through everything. So people are looking at like how does right. that inform our algorithms. Plus you, you said that like the math has gotten better, but I mean, the fact that the computers have gotten so much better yeah. than stuff that was not on the table before now you can do in yeah. seconds which would have taken hours that, that is a, definitely a similar paradigm and i think that's only going to become like a lot more important in the future so right now the software con for context optimization is okay it's not excellent like cvxpy is great but right you know there are some bottlenecks right now in which if your problem is too large you know, we will have some trouble compiling. It'll take a long time. It won't be suitable for real time. You may be discouraged mm. and just stop. But so I, I don't know, give it another 10, 10 years, maybe, maybe five years. And I think we're going to find that it's going to be so much easier to solve large scale convex optimization problems, like very quickly. And I, I think like, you know, that is the thing that, you know, the key thing that everyone is sort of, well, no one knows they're waiting on it. But I think that is the key thing that is bottlenecking progress in applications right. is the quality of the software. But I think it will come. Like I said, the software is really young. There isn't that much open source software, but you know, our lab is trying to change that. So are other labs. Well, and the other aspect of it too, which is quite surprising is that it's really easy to like lay out to present a convex optimization problem. I mean, you need to understand yeah. what the problem is, but to, it's like very intuitive. These are the constraints. Yeah. This is what we're optimizing for. Yeah. You know, that spacecraft example, I think really shows that once you are aware of context optimization, applying it is not that hard. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That is totally true. And that's, I think, the beauty of it, right? Like, it's like all that requires from you, and this is sometimes a big ask, but it's really important that you do it, is you figure out what you want, right? Figure right. out what you want and what is not allowed. And so right. many times people don't figure that out, which leads to really confused 
I mean, just people are, I think a lot of times people are confused about algorithms for various problems because they haven't figured out what to solve. But yeah, like you said, if you can figure those things out, it's not that hard to take it a step farther and then write down your problem and have it solved. I think it's more intuitive than ML, at least for someone who's just getting started with either one of these. Oh yeah, 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 definitely. And there's like no false analogies to the brain or anything like this. Right. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to worry about things like that. Yeah. Wait, yeah, let's, let's, let's dig into that a little bit. Everyone talks about how machine learning and neural nets in particular use learning in the same way that your oh, brain yeah. does. You, why, wait, why, why don't you buy that? I mean, I could say that, you know, when I solve a convex optimization problem, I'm not solving it, I'm learning the parameters, right? <laughs> but like my computer is learning what the best, you know, variable is, which is fine, sure. I mean, it's just kind of, you know, it, it's kind of silly, I think. I mean, but it's, I think it's Marketing. like a cultural or, yeah, it's like an aesthetic. I mean, some people like that verb. I like okay. it. So if someone is an optimization, we wouldn't say we're learning the parameters for a neural network. We say we're fitting a neural network to, you know, or finding the best parameters to minimize the loss function. I it, see. It's like a, yeah. I mean, yeah. I saw a meme that said uh, machine learning is just if statements change my mind. <laughs> Whoa. I don't think it's if statements. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think it's that. All right. So I think we've got, I think, I don't think we have enough time to get into uh, embedding and MD in particular. So we'll definitely have another episode where we dig into that, but uh, let's go. So I like to, we like to wrap the um, interviews up by asking, in your opinion, what is the best piece of software written either in recent history of, or of all time? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. You know, I, I don't usually think in terms of so it's funny, you know, I, I work in optimization, but, you know, <laughs> I don't think about my life in terms of optimal things. You know, I don't really optimize my life, I think, or, but anyway, I can talk about like, you know, maybe a piece of software that I think is like, that I just find like, you know, really cool yeah. and like software recently that I found like to be really influential for my you know, career. So at a high level, and I think this sort of fits our discussion, I just like think like software compilers are just like super, super cool because like, I think like they are what like really has unlocked so much productivity in, in software development, right? Because it allows us, allows humans to think in ways that are natural for them instead mm -hmm. of, you know, writing like assembly or something even lower level. And right. the idea of taking like, you know, a high level description of something and then, you know, rewriting it through a series of, you know, reductions into like equivalent, a series of equivalent forms and then giving it to a computer at the end is just, really, really cool. And like, you know, that general idea has so many applications and like lots of, you know, not, not just in software compilers strictly. It's like, you know, CVXPy can sort of be thought of as something like a software compiler. Right? Mm. Like we let humans think in ways that are most natural for them. And then we do the work of getting them, you know, a solution to their problem and like, you know, which requires thinking in ways that are unnatural sort of. Right. Right. So I, I think this paradigm, you know, of domain specific languages and just abstraction that is enabled by things like compilers, uh, I think is just really, really powerful. So that's one. Cool. I'm going to give you one more about. Wait, just, let me, let me, let me, let me, yeah. I want to call okay. on that because I think, I think that's a really, I think that's a really great observation. Yeah. I mean, I took a uh, computer architecture courses in college and in the beginning, when you're writing code, you had to understand exactly how a computer works. Like you have to know what a register is. You have to know how a CPU works. You have to know what clock cycles. You have to know, you have to know if it's pipeline or single CPU or not. And, sure. and you, you, know, you have to know all of those things so you can give the computer instructions that will say like a branch if this happens. But once 
people were able to write higher level languages that would just automatically figure all that stuff out for you. The fact that you don't have to spend what months or years learning how a computer works in order to write programs for it makes it accessible to so many more people. And now it seems like it's almost like compilers are our spectrum, right? So like you have a compiler where you don't have to know how a computer works and you have a compiler where you don't have to know how memory works and you have a, I have a compiler where you don't even have to know how like maybe object oriented works for you to make like a nice little simple domain specific language. So that does make sense that you guys are kind of doing that with optimization, you know, yeah. maybe you don't even have to be a coder to be able to just lay out a optimization problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. It's beautiful and so powerful. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think it's, I think you put, you put it beautifully. Cool. You can give the other answer if you want, but I think that's a really good answer already. Yeah. You know, I not so okay. The other I was gonna say what you you triggered my mind when you mentioned something about compilers related to convex optimization, but I've forgotten it. Whatever. So the other thing that I was gonna mention, I think that has been really personally influential because you know I actually don't know too much about how compilers work, but whatever. What, what I found personally influential is like just software for automatic differentiation. Like, so these days a lot of people really put a lot of focus on like how TensorFlow and PyTorch are software for machine learning and you know, fitting neural networks. I think the thing that's been more valuable is the fact that like these things just let you take derivatives of like arbitrary functions, more or less arbitrary in quotes. And I think we're going to see that that's going to have a really big impact and maybe even a more lasting impact than neural networks specifically, because it's going to enable us, you know, the idea that we can take a derivative and, you know, arbitrary code tune its parameters is, I think, really powerful. And we'll, we'll see applications in that in many, many places. So basically, you just have a bunch of data, you throw it into this, and then it will map a function to that that you can use for any sort of these problem-solving techniques, be it optimization, be it ML, be it anything else. Yeah, anytime you, know, anytime you want to understand how will my function change if I change my parameters a little bit and change the data a little bit, you can do that with automatic differentiation. And it's this beautiful nice. combination of like elementary math and elementary programming. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, that definitely sounds like something people should look up for uh, burgeoning fields. Akshay, it's been a very fascinating conversation. I can feel my brain expanding every time I talk to you. So thank you very much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and wisdom. We describe Akshay's research and link to everything that he, that he talked about in the show notes. Any other, any other comment that you have for the people out there? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, uh, this, this was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on. All right.